Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Marianne Williamson. Marianne is an internationally acclaimed spiritual author and lecturer. Six of her ten published books have been on the New York Times bestseller list, with four reaching number one. Her insight and a return to love, which has become a classic, has profoundly affected our whole generation of seekers. In it, she wrote, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Marianne's other books include The Age of Miracles, Everyday Grace, A Woman's Worth, Illuminata, Healing the Soul of America, and The Gift of Change. And today we will discuss her newest book, The Law of Divine Compensation on Work, Money, and Miracles, published by HarperCollins. Marianne, it's a real delight to have you with us. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Marianne, what inspired you to write The Law of Divine Compensation? You know, for all this talk about love and miracles, this book is remarkably grounded in real-world issues and really full of common sense. Well, thank you. You know, the lectures that I give um, in Los Angeles and around the country and other places as well have to do with how to take the principles of a miracle-minded uh, worldview and apply it in very practical ways. So the idea of a miracle is the idea of a shift in perception from fear to love. And that is not just some theological notion that remains separate from our worldly experience. Rather, uh, what I write books about and talk about is miracles as applied to personal relationships, miracles as applied to health and healing, miracles as applied to politics, miracles as applied to weight loss and so forth. So in this book, I had been giving a lecture in Los Angeles, and this was several months ago, maybe a year ago. It was when the, um, the recession was really at its most intense, and you could really feel a level of stress and tension and fear in the air that was unlike uh, normal times. And one night I was talking about miracles, the idea of love is the bottom line in uh, relation to our money and to our work as well as relationship to everything else. And I thought to myself, uh, we should have a conference call about this. So we just put it out that anybody who wanted to listen in could. And after that, I thought, you know, this material is helpful. Uh, so we published it as a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, love is a word that has been so overused and misused and confused. How are you using the word? Well, love might be a word that is underused, uh, that is overused, but it is a practice that is underused. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we don't have a world where there's too much love. Um, we don't have a world where people are uh, doing too much of the love thing. Quite the opposite. We have a world where doing, people are doing too much of the fear thing, too much of the violence thing, too much of the fighting thing, too much of the war thing, too much of the greed thing, too much of the unkindness thing, too much of the unjust thing. So I, I think that's very important to remember. But love Love isn't just a word, it is um, a word that is a verb, and it is a practice, it is a participatory emotion. So when we talk about love uh, in relation to uh, uh, work and money, it's one of those areas where we are aware that the cultural conversation, the conversation that dominates the world, puts all things spiritual uh, in a very separate category. Uh, when we think of, of the bottom line when it comes to money, we think of money as the bottom line. But this book is about love as the bottom line. 
this is a book not about ambition, but about inspiration. Uh, this is a book about seeing our work as a way that we serve, as a way that we take the love that is in all our hearts and the power of that love that is in all of our hearts and use it, uh, extend it uh, into whatever work that we do with you, this program, for me at this moment, this program. All of us do different things, but on a spiritual level, we're all here for a common purpose, and that is to take the greatness that lies in all of us through the spirit of that which is higher than any of us and put it in service, in devotion, uh, to a great healing of the planet. And this uplifts our, our personal energy. Uh, we do not come across as needy people then. We do not come across as greedy people then. We do not come across as people on the make, uh, too tempted in far too many cases to manipulate and exploit people in situations in order to get what we want. Uh, it's a completely different way uh, of, of filtering our views and our energies when we see ourselves not in a situation to get, but in a situation to give. And mm. when we do that, our personal energy is different and how other people experience us is different. And what the basic to this book is this concept that the universe is self-organizing. And when I say the universe is self-organizing, what I mean by that is that just as embryos turn into babies and acorns turn into oak trees and uh, buds turn into blossoms, there is clearly an invisible patterning in nature. Now, most of us think of that patterning, the embryo turning into the baby, for instance, and we think of it as something that pretty much stops once we're plopped onto the earth as babies. Like, from this point forward, you're on your own. But from a spiritual perspective, the patterning is still there. It's just on an invisible plane. And the difference between you and me and the embryo, or you and me and the acorn, is that we can say no. When we say yes, that means that we consciously ask, uh, whether in a secular context or in a uh, spiritual or religious context, that we be used. May, may I be used, may my talents be used, may my resources be used, that I might contribute at the highest level. And when we do that, we align ourselves with this self-organizing and self-correcting universe. And what that means in practical terms is that we're more likely to get the job. We're more likely to get the customer. We're more likely to get a letter or a check out of the blue. We're more likely to experience ourselves on a very practical level inside that matrix of, of infinite possibility and um, constant breakthrough. And I hope that people feel when they read the book that the book helps guide their thinking in a way that um, uh, allows all that to happen. One of the things that I particularly liked was that you're talking about um, not waiting for circumstances outside of you to change or to compensate you, but to make that shift inside in order to be ready for it, in order to attract it. That's a really important issue in the book because usually when somebody thinks, let's say, of a job, people say, I need to go get a job. I need to find a job as though it's out there somewhere. And one of the, uh, one of the chapters in the book is called Job Versus Calling. The idea that the, the calling, which is the deeper substance than just the job itself, emerges from within us. You know, I feel strongly that 
because women are only at this modern point in our history really able to share uh, our own views, there have been aspects of the way we experience life that have not been part of the major conversation. And one of the things that is absolutely fundamental <clears throat> to the feminine experience is the idea that we give birth from inside ourselves, even biologically when a woman is pregnant. So the idea of a job is something outside me. The idea of a calling is something that arises organically from inside me. And so once you accept that that genius lies in all of us, that there is a genius of infinite uh, power and possibility that lies inside all of us. We don't all have the same talents. We don't all have the same abilities, but we all have the same power inside us that leads, if we allow it to, to the emergence of fantastic possibilities. And when we live from that place, then it's not that we have to go get this or get that, but that we literally attract to us. You know, there's people talk about the difference between dynamic power and magnetic power. Dynamic is I have what it takes to go out there and get something. Magnetic power is there's something about me that attracts situations, that makes people want to come to me, that makes me, when I walk into a situation or I walk into a meeting, more likely to find uh, myself in a situation where others want to work with me or want to invest in my project and so forth. So thank you for mentioning that. It's very true and I think a very important part of the book that it's less about what's out there and more about what's in here. And it really is kind of turning a mental switch. I, I really loved that idea of a of viewing your work as a calling because you can either um, pursue your um, your innate talents and make that your calling, or you can do a mental switch and view what you do every day in a sacred way and, and see it as a calling rather than a job. Well, what's so great about the part, <coughs> excuse me, what's so great about what you just said is the realization that then you can never be unemployed. That even if you lose a job, your employment, once you see yourself as here as a kind of ambassador of all that is good about humanity as it flows through you, you realize that that job was given you the day you were born. And that whether or not you have a, a job as the world defines it, you are always employed by a kind of divine employer, and you can't get fired. So the person that you are every day, how you behave, how you treat people, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, what am I going to do today, when it would behoove us to ask more often, who am I going to be today? And then we realize that every single day, we have the best job in the world, and that is being the best version of ourselves that we are capable of. Oh, I just love that. Now, the title of your book is The Law of Divine Compensation. So it asks, it kind of begs the question, is someone up there keeping score? Well, someone up there, first of all, time and space are illusions of consciousness, as Einstein said. So no one's up there in, in space, but someone is up there uh, in terms of the higher regions of our consciousness. And it's not a someone, but it is a law. It's called cause and effect. Uh, in the East, it's called karma. And yes, it is a law, just like gravity is a law. The law of thermodynamics is a law. And it holds that every thought uh, takes form on some level. 
and that for every cause there is an effect. And in that sense, the universe keeps a perfect set of books. So in that sense, if you ask, is, some, is something keeping score? I don't know about the something or the someone, but is a score being kept? Actually, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I used to argue with my daughter when she was a little girl. I was the only parent trying to convince my daughter. When my daughter came home, she was a little girl, and she said, my friends tell me there is no Santa Claus. And I said, I, I cannot be responsible for what your friends' parents told you, but I am telling you, there is there is a Santa Claus. There is a principle in this universe that knows when you've been bad, knows when you've been bad, and knows when you've been good. And when you're good, the gifts will be coming to you accordingly. And if your friends say there's no Santa Claus, they can say there's no Santa Claus. But I'm telling you, in that sense, there is. <laughs> well, you also say that our problems. This is kind of a. a uh, what I associate with Eastern religions, that our problems in the mortal world are only illusions. And they tend to feel pretty real to us. So what do you mean by that? Well, from a metaphysical perspective, the idea here is that it's as though there are two parallel universes. And one universe is the three-dimensional realities that we all experience of life. But beyond the world, beyond the universe that is perceived by the physical senses, is a world that is not perceived with the physical senses, but it is the higher reality. It is the reality with a capital R. And in that universe, all things are perfect. Now, the problem we have is that living in this mortal world, we are trained to think that the world that we perceive with our physical senses is not only more real than the world uh, that the heart perceives, but that it is actually, uh, to, to, to many people, the belief is that it's the only world. Well, the problem here is that the world of the three dimensions is a world of scarcity and lack. It's a world where if you have, there's less for me. If I have, there's less for you. Uh, you and I are different, therefore you and I must compete. And there are a lot of us here, so in order for me to win, I really have to struggle to get ahead. Oh, and by the way, it's pretty short, and at the end of it, uh, I get sick and die. (laughs) And if that's what you perceive of the world, and that's what you live into, there's a lot of suffering there. And there is a lot of suffering. And obviously, um, you know, uh, while we can live in that place, the whole point of a spiritual search is for a different place uh, within our, our being, a different idea of what is true in the universe, and then a different place to live into, and a different set of experiences to have because of that. So that other world is a world in which there is infinite supply. There is no scarcity. It's not like if you have more, there's less for me. Rather, if you, if you live to your highest, in your highest place, there's actually a greater possibility of my living in the highest place. And in that world, there is no competition between us. There is collaboration between us. And we are led to each other, just as the cells in the body are led to each other, for purposes of collaboration. And when you see the world that way, and you see I'm not competing with anyone else to be me, I'm the only one who can be me, and you see your gifts and your talents as something that you are giving to the universe, knowing that you will receive uh, as you give, your, your worldview is different. You don't go into a situation thinking, oh, my God, I lack. I really need this. Rather, you go into any situation knowing that you are full because you carry within you the infinite love 
that all beings carry within our hearts. And then because you claim that place within yourself, you invoke into your experience an entirely different universe of possibilities. Mm. And what's so, what's so profound for me is that as someone who has always been interested in these things and has written books about these things and uh, been talking about these things for, well, I've been professionally doing it for 30 years, but in my life, you know, I started reading all these books and everything when I was like, you know, my late teens. The world has changed. This is now, I don't think this conversation is considered fringe anymore. Mm. I mean, the cultural dynamic has really shifted. And, you know, some people uh, talk about it in totally um, secular terms, which is fine, of course. But this idea that uh, we can live according to principles that are beyond what a mechanistic view of the universe would uh, imply, hey, this is the 21st century. This is how people are starting to see things now. And we're beginning to see that this worldview does not lead us to a life of sacrifice. It leads us to a life of greater abundance. A greater abundance for all, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you say a miracle is a shift in perception mm-hmm. from fear to love, from a belief in what is not real to faith in that which is. Mm-hmm. Beautifully put. Thank you. Um, sometimes it's hard to make that shift. What? How can you help us uh, find a way to 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 step out onto that uh, unknown place? Well, remember, we're talking about a worldview that is completely opposite of the worldview that dominates the world. Uh, we live in a world that is dominated by a thought system based on fear. And the answer to your question is prayer, meditation, mindfulness, whatever someone's practice is. Mm-hmm. If you just wake up in the morning and you read the newspaper and you read the, what's on your computer and you add caffeine and you saunter out into the day, good luck. <laughs> because you've just handed your mind over. You've just surrendered your mind to the fear-based thinking of the world. But if when you wake up in the morning, you, whether it's a secular or a religious or spiritual practice of meditation, quietness, reflection, inspiration, even for five minutes, you're living in a different place inside yourself. And then everything begins to change on the outside as well. That's just the way it is. Mm. What course... uh, you, You... spent a lot of time working with the Course in Miracles. What role did that play in your life? Well, the Course in Miracles, I am a a student of the Course, and I am today. You know, spiritual practice is like physical exercise. You know, you never get to stop. If you're doing uh, uh, physical exercise, you never get to look in the the mirror and say, well, I, I like the way I look now, so I can stop. You never get to stop. And honing your attitudinal muscles is really no different than honing your physical muscles. What you are seeking to do is to to develop your ability to be non-reactive, to be kind, to be compassionate, to bless rather than blame. And it takes brain, it takes practice to hone those emotional and psychological muscles. Of course, in miracles, is just one path. Uh, truth is met, written in many different ways. 
I just happen to be a student of the Course in Miracles. It doesn't claim any monopoly on truth or anything like that. And, I, you know, I always say my life works really well when I practice what I preach. Um, but it's like with physical exercise. You know, if you don't do the work, if you don't develop the musculature, uh, whether it is the thought forms of the world or the physical muscles, after a certain age, if we're not working at keeping them up, they're headed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's very easy in today's world. There's so much stress. And I think that that's why this book matters, because the stress and the tension around money and work can be just so acute that we can so, we're so vulnerable to the impulsive, reactive, um, whatever form it, it, our fear takes, responses that actually undermine and sabotage our capacity to have the success and the prosperity that we want. I think the, the stress levels were really reaching epic proportions when uh, we had that massacre in Connecticut. And I understand yeah. that you were much in demand as a media commentator. <clears throat> uh, I'm not surprised because you, you actually wrote in your book that seeking to solve a problem merely on the level of effect will never give you a true solution, but just a temporary fix. And, of course, our country tends to specialize in temporary fixes. Right. Uh, what, how do you think we begin to address the cause? You, you say that, that um, these thoughts um, that cause the original deviation from love, it's, it's, it's moving away from this, this anchoring in, in who we really are. How would you suggest us as a nation to address this, um, the causes of what resulted in in the rash of murders that we've been having? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen, and that I think is beginning to happen, (laughs) because I think with Sandy Hook, we really turned a corner. America needs to get out of denial. America needs to face uh, what a violent society we are, what a culture of violence we have. And yes, it's multidimensional. It has to do with guns. It also has to do with mental health. It also has to do with video games. It has to do with the media and Hollywood. It has to do with many things. But even though it's a nuanced uh, conversation, that doesn't mean we don't need to have the conversation. So I think it begins with recognizing we are a culture of violence and knowing that we will not interrupt a culture of violence until and unless we make a proactive commitment to the creation of a culture of peace. And that's extremely important. America is awakening from the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality is that each of us is on our own, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody, so, you know, as long as I just seek to get mine, I don't hurt anybody else, that's enough. Well, it's not enough, because at this point, we're beginning to experience, not just recognize philosophically, but to experience our interdependence. None of us are safe if crazy people have access to assault weapons. You cannot consider yourself, uh, well, I won't ever have to worry about that. These things, I think what Sandy Hook showed us, these things can happen anywhere. And that we must, each of us, in our own way. Um, you know, uh, there were stories of, of gun shop owners who closed the doors of their gun shop. There were um, stories of magazine editors who uh, reconsidered um, what they were going to put on the cover of magazines after Sandy Hook. Because I think more and more of us are recognizing we ourselves must be participants in the change. Um, there will be a phone call for those who are interested on January 9th 
uh, you can go to my website, uh, Marianne.com, or to SisterGiant.com. And there will be a conference call where I am interviewing a gentleman named Adam Winkler, who wrote a book about the history of the Second Amendment. People are beginning to understand more about the history of guns in the United States and what we're going to do to turn this around. There is a sea change, and the American people, I think, are willing to stand up to the NRA and um, realize that this, this will not change unless people are willing to make it change, and it's a really call to citizenship on a level that some of us have simply not been playing yet. As you say, if, if we can carry through on this, it really will be a major watershed for our country. Well, and you know, even what you just said, if we can, we can. The issue is, will we? Will we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And for us to really take what that means, there isn't anybody else who's going to do it for us. I think that we have been trained into the... Uh, we've been trained out of our citizenship, and we become spectators rather than citizens, uh, political spectators. You know, what are they going to do? Well, if we're awake and alive as to our own responsibilities in a democracy, they are going to do whatever we tell them to do. And kind of that's where I think a lot of people are right now. Mm-hmm. I-, I was going to ask you how we align our spiritual mission with a worldly career and there there's a lot of parallel between what we were just talking about our spiritual mission as a nation mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. worldly success as a nation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well what you're saying is once again it, you know you really gear in on what's important the spiritual mission of a nation you know the founding of this country was not just significant in the political unfoldment of the planet, but in the spiritual and philosophical unfoldment of the planet. We were the first country not to be a democracy, but to be founded as one. This idea that instead of being born into a situation where your ultimate possibilities were basically determined for you, you were of a lower class or you were a serf, forget it. You know, there was a limit to what you could do. There was a limit to where you could go. There was a limit to what you could be in this life. And the only reasonable thing to do with all your hope and yearning was to place it in the idea that after you die, you could go to heaven. Well, enlightenment thinking of the 18th century changed all that. And the founding of the United States was a part of that great enlightenment impulse, which said that people could be uh, whatever we wanted to be. And that government should support that. Government should not be under the auspices of a monarchy or aristocracy that said, no, you can't. Government should be the container uh, for the institutional force that says, yes, you can. So this is, we are, we are stewards of a magnificent narrative. And every generation has been one in which there have been those who have chosen to use the resources of the country in service to that ideal. And there have been those who chose to use the resources of the country to repudiate that ideal. There were those who said we should have slaves and those who said, oh, no, we should not have slaves. There were those who said women should not vote. And then there were those who said, oh, yes, they should. And we're living in one of those great uh, moments of our history right now. Our generation, no less than any other, is going through uh, the amazing contest. Uh, between those who feel that American democracy should uh, be one in which the fullest flowering of all of our individuals is our goal versus those who seem to think that 
the fullest flowering of just a few of us somehow in some way that I still haven't figured out um, somehow would help everybody else. And it, it doesn't actually. Absolutely. It seems so ironic that those who speak most stridently about freedom, um, freedom to bear arms and and freedom to keep what you earn, um, (laughs) seem to have lost uh, the, the understanding of other people's freedom and how it impinges on them. Well, it's that whole notion of moving into the interdependent model in our thinking and that really moving away from this idea that it's just about me and mine to it's about everyone's you know and and that the government should be a kind of balancing force uh, protecting both individual liberty but also the notion of a collective good so you know these are very passionate uh, times and vital times and times when all of us need to be doing our best thinking Mm. Our deepest thinking, our most nuanced thinking. Uh, this is this is a time for grown-ups. I think it's an all-hands-on-deck uh, type of moment in the United States and in the world. And uh, I think all of us, uh, all conscious people, are doing some deep questioning inside ourselves as to how we can uh, best contribute to the healing of this precious planet. Uh, again, uh, you pose a question uh, in the book that can apply to the individual as well as the nation. You say that the stories that we carry with us about the past limit us. So you can address that on any level you want. Well, I love your questions because you really do gear in. This is We are in the 21st century. The 20th century was different than the 19th century. The 19th century was different than the 18th century. The 20th century mind was different than the 19th century mind. And we are now living in the 21st century, but we are thinking as though like we're in the 20th. Now, having said that, not everyone is. And you can see in every area that people are just leaping forward with new ideas. And like you said, breaking the patterns of the old, interrupting the pattern of thinking that emerges from an inaccurate and obsolete mindset, which sees the world as just one big machine and uh, seeing it as very mechanistic and seeing things from a very rationalistic perspective in which basically emotion has little to do with it. Consciousness has little to do with it. Human relationships have little to do with it to a whole new era. It's an era of consciousness where we realize we are interrelated, our feelings about things do matter as much as our thoughts about things, our relationships with others and with a sense of of our own divine source is absolutely foundational to who we are and to what occurs in the world. So I think American politics, one of the reasons why we're stuck in this country is because American politics has become like a logjam where this great new leap in consciousness is occurring everywhere else, but not there. And it's not occurring there because it is so stuck in, an instit- in a very entrenched institutional mindset uh, that, that is uh, perpetuated through the activities of the two, two major political parties. It is perpetuated by the fact that uh, we are so beholden to moneyed interests uh, rather than the, uh, you know, you, you don't get a feeling because it's not the case that the real genius of the American people is uh, able to run the show here, but rather the short-term economic interests of uh, a few uh, a few a few corporate uh, matrices is able to run the show. And um, 
say, JFK said, those who make peaceful evolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Uh, we have got to make space for the greater evolution of the consciousness of this country in our politics as well as everything else, or things could get uh, really rough in the next few years. That puts me in mind of the criticisms that have been leveled against the uh, bankers, the Wall Street types, mm-hmm. um, and you know cor- corporations in general about greed. I know that um, companies used to be happy to make I don't know a five ten percent return and do good for their employees, do good for the community, and now everything is sacrificed on the altar of share price and, you know, quarterly gains. Right. Uh, and, and the only people who never seem to lose out are the stockbrokers who make a turn at every transaction. Right. And they just keep on getting richer and richer, and that is sucking wealth right out of the companies that could be turning that wealth back into jobs and into the community. It's so frustrating. It's frustrating, and it's also something, the good news, the good news about the bad news, is that more and more people are beginning to realize this. Back in the 1970s, um, what you said is true. Basically what happened, there was a tremendous cultural turn, and shareholder values began to replace human values. Um, and it all became about uh, economic short-term economic gain uh, for uh, for the um, business entity, uh, and it threw American capitalism out of its moral center. It threw American capitalism out of its ethical center. Um, it threw out its it completely uh, fell out of alignment with its relationship not only to its product but to its workers, to its clients, and uh, you know, in a very real way, all hell broke loose. And that's why, for instance, in in the law of divine compensation, even though I don't take it up on a societal level so much as I take it up on a personal level, in this area as well as any other area, realigning ourselves with the the principles, whether you call them spiritual, ethical, divine, um, righteous, integrity, I don't care what words we use, um, but we deviate from those principles, by whatever name we call them, to our peril, Mm. to our peril because... Um, you can't mess with righteousness and expect your life to work. Righteousness well, means the right use of the mind, and it has to do with uh, treating other people fairly. It has to do with uh, behaving in integrity and with ethics. Um, and when, when we push aside values like that and consider them just quaint uh, and unnecessary compared to the larger issue of increasing the bottom line for this company, um, what we get from that is what we have now. And I think all of us are seeking to do what we can to right the ship. Absolutely. Well, so how would we replace money as a yardstick of success? Well, for me personally, I don't think the issue, I'm not someone who thinks that we need to replace money uh, as the yardstick uh, of success. Oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you meant replace money as the yardstick of success. Yes, I thought you meant how do we replace money like some kind of barter system. Well, what it has to do with is realizing that we need to throw out myths like nice guys finish last. Finish, uh, finish last. Nice guys do not finish last. Not ultimately. They might finish last in a short term, but not in long term. And when you say, how do we change that? When you make love the bottom line, you know, there used to be things like concepts like blood money. You just don't do it. 
you know, it, it, some things you just don't do because it's the wrong thing to do. And there are other things to do because it's the right thing to do. And even though you might not with your mortal mind be able at any given time to see where money would come from. And interestingly enough, and I've not talked about, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I'll give you an example is this book. When I stood up at a lecture in Los Angeles and I realized that so many people really needed to hear uh, a deeper conversation and to be involved in a deeper conversation of where do, where do I take the idea of miracles and apply them to my situation with money and my situation with work. And I said at the lecture that day, we need to have a phone call about this. Now, those phone calls are free. There's no money involved in, in, in those calls. I just put it out on Facebook and, you know, on Twitter that there will be a conference call, you know, call this number if you want to hear about uh, miracles and money and work. Well, in that moment, there was not at all anything in my consciousness about doing anything other than giving away whatever information I might have that would be helpful to people. Well, months later, when I was talking to my publisher, and they were talking about a smaller book that might come out before this larger book that I'm writing later, I just thought about it. I said, you know, I see what you think about this. I said, I did this phone call, and, I, and there was a lot of good stuff in there. I'm going to send you the transcript, see what you think. And later, when a publisher said, yes, we would like to buy that from you. Hmm. We would like to turn that into a book. I thought about it. I thought, you know, that is such a demonstration of what the book is about. Because I was paid for that. I was paid by a publisher to do something that, which at the moment that I did it, didn't have money. It, it wasn't even in my consciousness. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And yet the universe, the law of divine compensation, is the idea that the universe is invested in the self-actualization of, of all living things. It is invested in every person in every situation being lifted to the highest level of creative possibility. That's just like the embryo doesn't say, I will become a baby, I will become a baby. How do I work at becoming a baby? There is an invisible force that turns that little sperm and egg into a brain and a liver and, a, and eyes and fingers and toes. And so it is that in, this, in, in, in our world that we experience personally, there is a force seeking to lift all things up and give all beings everything that they need in order to thrive when we surrender into our hearts and make our service to love the most important thing. And look, I've, I've, you know, I, I have the same experience of life everybody else has. You know, I've had my failures as well as my successes. Uh, and, and, you know, in the book I talk about how most of us have a couple of files uh, one of which is my own damn fault, the things we have trouble <laughs> forgiving ourselves for in our financial lives, mistakes we feel we made in the past, and also uh, a file that says, I don't know how to forgive those bastards, uh, the people that we feel wronged us. But the book is about the fact that we have to clean up whatever mess we haven't made in the past. Uh, we have to be able to forgive and work on forgiving ourselves and others. Um, all that personal work is very much a part, uh, whether it's with work and money or anything else, the personal work is a very important part of our learning to uh, uh, the tools and the, the capacity and developing the skills to put aside one story and write a new one. It doesn't you matter actually, what happened in the past. You, know? you, you made a point of forgiveness being really important. Why is that? It's so important because miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. 
So wherever there is love, the universe is able to to do its thing. It's like I was saying when I had just a moment of love, let's, let's do this, this conference call. Whenever there is love, miracles occur naturally. Wherever there is a withhold of love, the miracle is deflected. You know, if you walk out into the sunlight, the sun shines on you. But if Hitler walked out into the sunlight, the sunlight also shone on him. If you think with love, you get a miracle. If you think without love, you deflect the miracle, period. That's, that's simply the law. That's the law of consciousness. That's the universal law that is objective and discernible, just as the law of gravity or any external laws are objective and discernible. And so if I am not forgiving myself or I'm not forgiving others, I am saying to the universe, no, you cannot enter here and give me new life. And the idea is that the universe is always ready. It's like an eternal opportunity machine. But we have to write our, our hearts. You know, it's like when people get sober, right? And they know that nothing's going to ultimately change unless you make yourself right with God, with a higher power, with the universe. And so what we keep doing in our society is we keep watering the leaves. You know, we water the leaves instead of the roots. And the roots have to do with the thoughts we think. Mm. And that's why it's an extraordinary moment. You know, it's like the Chinese character that said it's a moment of peril and opportunity. If we continue with the old mindset that is so driven by an external view of things and seeking only external remedies because we think the problem is external and outside ourselves, we will continue to have what we have. And there will continue to be massacres and there will continue to be a depressed economy and there will continue to be all manner of personal struggle. Or there will be this incipient leap forward, which I think is we are just, we're already in the squat position, you know, we're ready for that leap. And um, I think it's great that it's a new year because I think at the beginning of a year we all have more of a sense that, uh, you know, anything is possible this year. Yeah, and that anything's possible. Yeah. What are your four rules for miraculous work creation? No, you're fine. You're reading that part where it says something about have fun. Uh, do something else, kick ass. What, what are the four things I yes. say in there? <laughs> yeah, you read them. You've obviously got the book in front of you. <laughs> no. Um, I might, yes, I do, but let me see. I have it um, dog-eared, but I have to find the right dog ear. Well, there's something in there about those words. One was, I remember the kick ass. I mean, that's why everybody <laughs> mentions that everybody found that humorous. But it's true, you know. Put your passion into it. Go out there and make it happen. Don't be so yeah. depressed about the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Um, I really liked at the beginning of your book, you talk about um, people saying, "Yes, miracles are all well and good, and the universe might be benign, but what about the starving children in Africa?" I loved your response. Could you recap it for us? Well, you know, people will say things to me like, oh, right, so you're saying that, you know, children are starving in Africa because they're not loving enough? And I say, no, 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 no. People are starving in Africa not because they're not loving enough. People are starving in Africa because we're not loving enough. You know, 17,000 children uh, in this world starve every day. We have a $700 billion military budget every year. And uh, Columbia economist Jeffrey Sachs says that if we were to spend $100 billion, which is one-seventh of our yearly military budget, if we were to spend $100 billion over 10 years, we could eradicate deep poverty from the face of the earth. Deep poverty means the 1 billion people 
on this planet who live every day on a dollar and 25 cents and less. I mean, think about that. So the Western nations of the world, if we got together and said, this stops, this stops now, then it would. You know, we wring our hands and talk about how awful it is. And there are many people, don't get me wrong, who do extraordinary work at making these things right. But they're not being made right on a fundamental level. Why? Because there's no, starving children have no economic leverage. As, as long as those with economic leverage wield political power, then those who have no economic leverage will wield no political power. You know, they have no corporate lobbyists in the halls of Congress. They have citizens lobbyists, lobbyists from humanitarian uh, organizations, many of which do extraordinary work. But they're still, for the most part, for all practical purposes, given the breadcrumbs. You know, they have to struggle to compete for the breadcrumbs that are just dropped from the table of the corporate elite. And that's just, that's not a theory, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just the way it is. And it will not change unless we, the people, go, this needs to change, and it needs to change now. Because the gap between the haves and the have-nots is literally unsustainable. We cannot continue like this. And yeah. when I say we cannot continue like this, I mean literally uh, we cannot continue like this. It is being, it, it leads to recklessness. We are reckless with our planet. We are reckless with, with justice. We are reckless with the economy. We're reckless with the way we treat those who don't have. And this kind of reckless behavior uh, is already leading to consequences that are increasingly horrific. So I, I think it's an extraordinary moment, but it's a very sobering moment. And um, a mature and emotionally and psychologically sober people are being called upon to think deeply and act powerfully right now. I, I can't think of anything more important for us to focus on as we enter the new year. Uh, and, and it is a question of self-reflection and, and also looking at our part in making all of this the kind of world we want. Marianne, what is, what is your website? My website is Marianne.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, or MarianneWilliamson.com, either one. Um, and, and people, of course, can find out about the book and about Sister Giant and all the other things. What, what is Sister Giant? Sister Giant is a conference. I've done two of them. One was called Sister Giant, Awakening the uh, Sleeping Giant of American Womanhood. That was a couple of years ago. And then a few months ago, we did a marvelous conference called uh, Sister Giant, uh, Women, uh, Nonviolence, and Birthing a New American Politics. And it's the idea, much the way you and I have been talking about today, of how do we bring a higher consciousness perspective into our political debate and our political dialogue? Because it's certainly not coming from the political uh, halls of political power uh, as they exist right now. And like with anything else, Americans are just having a different conversation. You know, it's just, and people are, by the way, when I talk about this uprising of consciousness, even though I've been talking about the United States, this is not emerging from the United States. It's coming from, obviously, I think everybody's very clear about that. It's coming from deep inside all of us as human beings. It has no center in, in place. It has no center in any particular, uh, um, you know, ethnicity or culture or nationality. I think it's a global phenomenon of what's occurring where people are, are hungry for a more humanitarian perspective. Um, in which we have not so financialized everything that money is put before 
uh, all things that matter. Mm. Well, uh, our time has been all too short. So we've been speaking with Marianne Williamson about her book, The Law of Divine Compensation on Work, Money, and Miracles. Marianne's website is marianne.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E.com. Marianne, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you, and I look forward to doing it again someday. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for our track of the week with music selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. With styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, this growing group of musicians is using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring Do That Thing by Nathan Aswell from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thank you. 
Aswell from his debut CD, Little by Little. Nathan believes that his calling in this life is to inspire and heal through his heart-centered music making. He combines his two passions of music and spirituality, and he joyously reminds us that love is all there is and that we are all one. Learn more about Nathan on his website, NathanAswell.com. That's N-A-T-H-E-N-A-S-W-E-L-L.com. And to find out more about the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To find more books and films, reviews and interviews that make you think, check out our website at ncreview.com. You can leave comments for us on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ncreview. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.